We're in the middle of a series of sermons in Mark's gospel that are uh, dealing with questions, specifically questions that are uh, addressed to Jesus. And, uh, and so I want to begin with a question this morning that initially may sound very, uh, very simple, a very simple question. In fact, it may be the, the subheading on some of your Bibles uh, to this section of Scripture. Um, and the question is this, whose son is Jesus? Because in answering that question, we'll immediately get at a bigger question, who is Jesus? And there have been uh, tons of answers to this question over the last several years, hundreds of years. Answers to this question from different uh, faiths, different religions have taken a stab at this question, have had answers for who Jesus is. You can't simply not have an opinion about who Jesus is, because in not having an opinion, you have an opinion that you don't care, it doesn't matter. And so other faiths have tried to answer this, and so I want to give you a few wrong answers to start. Wrong answers from different religious traditions, and instead of just giving you the answer that they give in some kind of straw man argument, I want to give you the source. I want to give you the, the quote. I want to give you where it comes from, from their authoritative leader or documents, books, uh, teaching, and, um, and you can go and follow up there yourself and see this for yourself. But uh, the Jews had an answer. They said Jesus was a man who practiced magic and led Israel astray. You can find this in the Jewish uh, Talmud uh, Sanhedrin 107b. That's interesting to you. Islam has had an answer. Jesus was a prophet, but not divine. He was not God. This is in the Quran, chapter 3. You can find some of their teaching on Jesus. Mormonism has had an answer. Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. You can find this on page 15 of GTA by Elder Milton Hunter of the First Council of Seventy uh, of the LDS Church. The Jehovah's Witness uh, Church has had an answer. Jesus is the created being, Michael the Archangel. Page 218 of the Watchtower publication, Reasoning from Scriptures. Freemasonry has had an answer. We tell the sincere Christian that Jesus of Nazareth was but a man like us. In Pike's Morals and Dogma, page 226 and 525. The Unitarian Church has said that Christ was only a man. You can see this on their official UAA, or UUA website. So the question, who is Jesus? Several attempts to answer this question. Whose son is Jesus? Both of these questions eternally significant. You miss this question and you miss the gospel. If you miss any part of this question, Jesus' humanity or Jesus' divinity, that he was the fully divine, fully God, fully man that walked this earth. If you miss any part of that, you miss the gospel. And our text this morning addresses this specifically. So to remind you where we've been in Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus has just endured a barrage of malicious attacks, questions being thrown at him. And these questions have dealt with uh, theological, political, and religious topics. The political question came to Jesus uh, about um, this, this, this idea of, of taxes. And Jesus brilliantly answers by holding up a tiny coin that has the image of Caesar and says to the, uh, to the questioners, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This trap could have led him to uh, being killed as a political insurrectionist, but it could have been killed for usurping Rome's authority, but the way he answers so brilliantly does not. Theological question, 
this trap regarded the resurrection. The Sadducees came to him and, and asked him about a question about the resurrection. And Jesus responds masterfully, telling the religious leaders, telling the Sadducees, uh, from their own book, he answers them with Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, the heart of the Torah, uh, this question about resurrection and marriage that they bring to him. This trap could have led to his death as a heretic by uh, the religious authorities, by the Jews. And then this final question that we saw last week, this religious question, a scribe comes to him and from a bit more honest place, a little bit of some kind of intrigue or interest in this Jesus of Galilee, and ask him this question about the greatest commandment. And Jesus, with incredible wisdom, fused together the commands to love God and love your neighbor uh, with startling convictions and, and implications in his teaching there. And with this seemingly unending attack of questions coming to a halt, you see in verse 34, we've read this before, but verse 34 of Mark chapter 12, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The, the questioning has stopped. And I have this image in my mind of, of, of a dog that's been abused or, 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 or beaten in it, and it kind of has its tail between its legs, and it's kind of cowering and kind of squirming away in defeat. And I, I feel like that's probably what these guys looked like. They, they, they sort of looked like that. And, and it seems that they look like that to Jesus too, because as they're pulling back, as they're pulling away, Jesus decides to play offense, Right? So for you guys that, that are not sports fans or ladies that are not sports fans, offense means that we have the ball. It's time to score. And Jesus goes on the offense here, and he and gives this counterattack to the scribes. And um, you've heard the text read this morning. You hear these questions, this question from Jesus. And so to remind you guys, we talked about the scribes a little bit last week to remind you who they are. And the scribes were biblical uh, scholars, Old Testament scholars uh, that, that were teachers of the law. You would, recognize, you would have recognized them in this day because they, they wore long white robes all the way down to their feet, and they wore that because they wanted to be recognized so that they would physically stand out from other people. And they wanted to stand out from other people because when they came in the room, people respectfully uh, stood up as scribes walked by to show honor to them, and they liked that. And when they were greeted, they were called master or teacher or great one, and they really liked that. So they, they would, uh, they would um, when the wealthy would host parties or, or, or feasts, the scribes were always invited and, and were considered guests of honor at any of these parties. They reclined to the right or to the left of the host at the, at the dinner table uh, that carried over into their, uh, their religious life as well. Even in the synagogue, in, in the church house, they would have places of honor. They would sit with their backs up against the box or the chest that held the, the Torah and the and they would sit, and, and the people in the congregation would sit and, and look at them. It's a place of honor, even in, in the synagogue. They were considered more important than the, than the elderly or even their own parents. And they liked this. And it was these proud, privileged scribes that Jesus now turns his attention toward. And so sort of two sections in our text this morning, uh, you see them divided there, probably in your, in your Bible as well. Two segments where Jesus is doing some teaching. And so that's kind of how we've broken up this morning to walk through our text together uh, into in two, two sections. So number one, section number one, uh, verses 35 through 37, Jesus reveals his true identity. He reveals his true identity. Now you can imagine these scribes are probably pretty nervous when Jesus speaks up and he begins to ask the questions himself. He turns the tables on them and he becomes the questioner, right? I mean, because you can imagine they went into this thing thinking uh, I can't wait to stump this backwoods podunk country preacher from Galilee. This dude's from Nazareth. 
No, nothing, like nothing good comes out of Nazareth. We're going to stump this backwoods country preacher and make him like a fool. And then they don't. <laughs> and then the exact opposite happens. He answers everything they throw at him with incredible wisdom. And you can imagine as they're turning in defeat, Jesus speaks up and says, uh uh-uh, not yet. Wait one second. I have a question for you. You can imagine the, the, their hearts sinking. Oh, man, what, what is he going to ask us? So verse 35, he starts with a warm-up question. He says this in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, I mentioned the first point for our sermon, the first point that we see, I think, in the text as it's divided, is that Jesus is revealing to them his true identity. And Jesus does this basically in two steps. He reveals that, that he himself, the Christ, is the God-man, that he's fully God, fully human. So the first part of this, this revelation of who he is, Christ is David's son, he's fully human. Jesus asks this question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? This question was meant to get them thinking about the Old Testament Scriptures, something they were supposed to know really well. And the numerous scriptural references to this, this idea, this thought that they knew, this idea of David's lineage and the Christ coming from, the Messiah coming from the lineage of David, physical descent, he would be the offspring of David, there's plenty of evidence for that. So this is not a hard question. This is something they would have readily granted and been able to give you the biblical references for. Right? Some of them are 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God told David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7. God tells um, through, through Isaiah that the Messiah would reign on David's throne. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5. Jeremiah says, I will raise up for David uh, a righteous branch. The Messiah, the Christ, had to descend from David, from the lineage of David. And all Jews knew this, especially their leaders, their Biblical teachers, their, uh, their, their, their teachers and experts of the law, they would have known this. This was not controversial. The scribes would have rightly been looking for the deliverer, from, for the Messiah to come from the lineage of David. So Jesus has them warmed up, right? To continue our sports theme, he has had them in the bullpen stretching and, and throwing some pitches to get warmed up. He's got them thinking about their Bibles, about the Old Testament. They're, they're thinking about the physical bloodline of David and how the, the, the Messiah would come through David in a physical way. He's got them there. And that's right and good. He is fully human. But they're thinking in no way about the supernatural. They're thinking in no way about this next part that Jesus is fixing to, uh, to, to lay on them. And this is where Jesus turns up the heat a notch and completely blows their minds. The second part of, of Jesus identifying who he is. So yes, Jesus is son of David. He's fully human. They wouldn't have argued that. But the second part, the Christ is David's Lord. Meaning he's fully God. He's fully divine. Here's where the twist comes. Here's where Jesus turns up the heat a bit. Look at verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your foot. Now, this is not the main point of this passage, but I think it's worth us noting. Notice what Jesus teaches us about our doctrine of Scripture. Notice what Jesus teaches us about our Bibles. Jesus ascribes the psalm, again, he's quoting Psalm 110. Talk about that more in a bit. But he's ascribing the psalm, 
specifically 1.10, to David and saying that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote it. So think about what Jesus is teaching us about our Bibles. This is a wonderful description of what our Bible is. Our Bible is filled with words that are, are, are written by human authors. They're written by the hand of a, of a man when moved by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what Scripture is. That's what your Bible is. That's what Jesus is saying about the Psalms. It's a uniquely divine and human book. That's why if anyone comes to you from any other church or, uh, or denomination or worldview and tells you that you need the Bible and stop them right there. Say, wait, 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 no. The Bible alone is the inspired and errant, infallible word of God. It's all we need. It reveals God to us. And so David declared, back to what he said, after Jesus teaches us a little bit how to, how to read our Bibles, that David declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. This is the part of the sermon where Jesus, uh, or the, the, the preacher would say, uh, take out your Bibles and turn to, right? Jesus takes them to Psalm 110, the most quoted uh, Old Testament passage in your New Testament. It's used by Paul, it's used by the, writers of, or the writer of Hebrews. The scribes would have known Psalm 110. Jesus tells them to take out your Bibles, look at Psalm 110, and he reads them this, this statement, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. Then comes the punchline, verse 37. David himself, this is Jesus, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? There's no trickery here. It's not a play on words. It's not like Jesus is trying to to trip them up with some kind of confusing play on words. He's not playing a bad guy here. It's a good question. How can the Messiah be both David's son and his Lord if he's merely human. The point is that he can't be. He can't be David's son and David's Lord if he's merely human, if he's only human. But he's not merely human. He's not just a human. And their silence proves that they had no answer for this question. Their silence proves they hadn't considered a question like this from their own scriptures, from their own Old Testament. No one would have seen this issue until Jesus raised it. I mean, think about it. What father would call his son or grandson Lord? The Messiah is not simply David's son. The Messiah is David's sovereign. He's David's Lord. He's David's ruler and master. He is God's son who rules and reigns as king and is seated at the right hand of the father. And David's words, they can't work. What David says in Psalm 110 doesn't work if he's simply a human being. He must be more. And this is where Jesus is using the scriptures, using their scriptures, which they were supposed to be experts in, to explode their small and limited understanding of the Messiah. He's showing them, you don't know what you're talking about. It would take a divine human being, a God-man, to fulfill the scriptural requirements for the Messiah according to their own source of authority. And Peter connects this, right? The Peter, the, uh, the apostle that, that, that walked with Jesus, he connects this in Acts chapter 2. After, after having seen the resurrection, Acts chapter 2, verse 34 through 36, he quotes this same text. I told you this is used uh, numerous times in your New Testament. Peter quotes this. He says, For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know 
That for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter's saying, this one that you nailed to a cross and killed is Lord and Christ. He's the one David was talking about back in the Psalms, back in Psalm 110. So this, this conversation with the scribes here is, is sort of a semi-veiled confession from Jesus. I told you everything from the point that, that he begins to enter Jerusalem has changed. His attitude and, and, and position toward who he is as Messiah has shifted. And this is a confession, even if it is semi-veiled. That he is indeed the Messiah, that he is the God-man of this prophecy. His human hands, his human lips were controlled by a divine nature. That he's fully God. Now there is coming an explicit, unveiled confession, right? That's coming. We'll get to that soon. Remember, at this point, we're only a few days uh, in Jesus' life from the cross, right? And so before this week is over... A high priest will look at Jesus in the eye and say, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? In Mark chapter 14, we'll get there. And at this point, when the high priest asked Jesus this, Jesus answers, and it's no longer veiled in any way. Because when he answers the high priest, he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power coming from the clouds of heaven. He is the God-man, the Messiah. And before this week is over, this God-man would die a criminal's death on a cross to fulfill Psalm chapter 22. And before this week is over, this God-man would be placed in a tomb all by himself, seemingly saying, seemingly proving that he was indeed not the Messiah. Oh, friends. But when this week has ended, And Sunday has arrived. His mighty resurrection would make everything resoundingly clear concerning his divinity and his humanity. That when that stone was rolled away, there is absolutely no doubt. All doubt is relinquished. That this one, this God-man, he is truly the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David. And that by his resurrection, he's not only fulfilled prophecy, but he's conquered death. He's defeated the grave for those that will come to him. That's what we see in the cross. That's what we see in the resurrection. That all of this that he's been saying, even this semi-veiled confession this morning, is proven true in the resurrection. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, concerning his son, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit uh, spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the son of David, but he's the son of God. He is fully human and fully divine. So Jesus reveals his true identity, that he is David's son and he is David's Lord. Mark gives us this summary of the event, verse 37b, the end of verse 37. And the great throng heard him gladly. I don't think for a second that the masses of people that are watching this scene unfold understood everything that Jesus said. In fact, I believe they probably understood very little of what Jesus said. His own disciples really don't until the resurrection. But I think in that moment, they saw these pompous scribes squiggling and squirming and wiggling around a little bit because they're left looking like idiots. They don't even know the the book that they're supposed to be experts in. This backwoods country preacher's just proving them all wrong. I think they enjoyed that. I think that's what verse 37b is telling us. They heard him gladly. There were smiles on their faces as they watched Jesus 
finally now spin and turn the tables and, and then begin to ask them questions that they can't answer in light of the four that he just answered with incredible wisdom. Jesus has them, and they can't do anything about it. It doesn't stop there. I told you there's kind of two sections here. Jesus reveals his true identity. And then verse 38, he goes on, a, on, a, on another opportunity to teach. And in doing so, uh, he reveals our true identity. He reveals these scribes' true identity. And I think ours as well this morning. Our true identity apart from Christ. So I guess point number two, Jesus reveals our true identity. Jesus had attacked the scribes, right, where they most, uh, where they would have hurt them the most, right? The book that they're supposed to be uh, self-proclaimed experts in, the scriptures. And at this point, they were, they were so consumed with political, nationalistic dreams of deliverance that they missed the, the spiritual deliverance that was to come through the Messiah. And they, they were so consumed with an earthly kingdom that they glossed right over the spiritual, uh, eternal kingdom. And friends, I think in our world, in our day and age, we are there so often that, that we neglect the spiritual kingdom because we're con- so consumed with our earthly kingdoms, our, what we can see and touch and what we can, uh, we can do for ourselves right here on planet Earth, right? And if we're honest, we're there. We're where these scribes are so often, thinking about the earthly instead of the spiritual. And Jesus' next point here teaches us this. So, sort of four in these verses in 38 through 40 Four sort of categories to beware of. Jesus uses that word beware. He uses uh, beware of the scribes. But you can apply that beware to all of the description of the scribes that he's about to give. And I think it gives us sort of four categories that we should watch for. That we should beware of today. So number one, beware of those that do things for show. Beware of those that do things for show. Verses 38 and 39. Let's read together. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes. Who walk like who walk like who like to walk around in long robes, and like greetings in the marketplace, and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. So all of these descriptions that we've just been given here, they like to walk around in long robes. They, they were they were not interested in, in meeting people's needs and loving on other people because they cared more about being seen by the public, by being seen by everyone else in these special robes. Woodrow Wilson one time described a preacher that he knew as being the only man who could strut while sitting down. (laughs) And I think that's probably these guys, right? This this, this idea of swagger. Swagger's nothing new. These guys had it, and they desired it, and they wanted everybody to see it. I mean, this has always been a temptation. and It's like these guys were just cupping their hands saying, Hey, look at me. I, I want your attention. These long robes would have made them stand out from anybody around them. Again, it says they like, they like greetings in the marketplaces. We've already mentioned this. The idea of being called rabbi or master or father or great one. They expected that. They liked it. They wanted it. They thrived on people recognizing them for their importance. It says they liked the best seats in the synagogue. No back row. These guys weren't going to be back row Baptists. They wanted the front and most prominent seat in the house. They expected places of honor at feasts. Sitting near the host. That's why Matthew chapter 23, Jesus confronts this attitude. Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says clearly, The great among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what about us this morning? You may be sitting there, well, Matt, I don't have my long robe on this morning, and uh, I don't really care about being noticed. I don't really care if I've got the best seat in the house or some kind of honorary title, so I must be doing okay. 
Friends, here's the reality with this kind of sin and this kind of temptation is that if you struggle with this, you're probably not even aware of it. You're probably oblivious to it. Wanting to be seen, wanting to be noticed. That's why we need brothers and sisters in our lives that love you enough. That's why we need community, Christian, godly community, so that other believers will love you enough to speak into your life and say, hey, brother, I think you're getting a little arrogant here. I think you're desiring to be seen and put on display here. Jesus warns them to beware of people who want to put on a show. Why? Because I think that's our our nature. I think that's who we are. That's our true identity apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we want that. You may say, well, Matt, I hate attention. I don't ever want the spotlight. I actually actually want the opposite. I never want to be seen. Yeah, but it's some part of you, even if it's just with your wife or kids at home, you want to be recognized as doing something, as being the one who's given more or done more or sacrificed more. So in, in some way, all of us are struggling with this in, in our nature, in our sinful nature of being noticed, of putting on a show, of being recognized for our own merit, for our own value. Second, uh, the second thing he says, beware of those who take advantage of others. Beware of those who take advantage of others. Verse 40. Beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses, it says. Now, the scribes, they, uh, they lived on subsidies. They were not allowed to take a salary for their work. And so, uh, so they lived on, on gifts. And it was pretty easy to come by. Supporters were pretty easy to find, donors, because it was considered a, a noble and, and good thing to do to support a scribe, to give to a scribe. And so oftentimes, those with limited means... The elderly, the widows in the text, the very specific example that it gives us here in Mark 12, they suffered financially so that they could display um, charity and, and love toward these scribes and giving them uh, financially, giving to them financially. These, these folks that are walking around with this boastful show of piety. And so in this context, the vulnerable there that are being taken advantage of are these widows. These guys are... are, are are supposed to know their Bible. They're supposed to be teachers of the law, experts in the law. And they obviously hadn't given serious consideration to the clear teachings of the Old Testament that strongly condemned those that would take advantage of widows and orphans, right? I mean, see Isaiah 10 or Amos 2 or uh, Micah 3. All clear teachings to care for the widow and orphan, not to take advantage of them. I heard a preacher talk about a, a postcard that he received in the mail from an, an evangelist uh, that was uh, sending out propaganda information about his ministry. And on this postcard, there were eight different pictures to show how versatile a man of God he was, how he could relate to everyone. And so there was a, there was a picture of, of him praying by a waterfall, showing that he was well-traveled and loved nature. And there's a picture of him uh, with folded hands praying on a stack of letters uh, so he's obviously popular because he has people write him letters. And there's a picture of him praying with a, with a baby, and so he loves kids. And there's a picture of him holding hands and praying with a, a poor man on, a, on the street. And so he obviously cares for the poor. But then you flip the card over, and on the back, the invitation, the postcard, was really an invitation to, uh, to purchase a, a, a holy handkerchief, Right? that had been taken to the Jordan River and dipped into the Jordan River. And, and if, you, if you prayerfully applied this handkerchief that had been that dipped in the Jordan River, then it could bring healing to the sick. If you would only send him $15, he would send you one of these holy handkerchiefs. And, and we, we, we laugh about that and snake oils and these kind of things that we see on TV and, and see in, in the mail and stuff like that. But you, but you know who's not laughing about that stuff? 
You know who would be willing to pay $15 for something so silly? That elderly person who has chronic pain and they would pay $15,000 if they could have just a moment of relief from the pain that they deal with every day. Shame on men or women who would take advantage of someone in the name of Christ. And here's the reality. This could go so much further than just ministers and people that would, evangelists and people that would sell you snake oil or a, or a holy hanky. A shame on any of us that in our dealings would take advantage of someone else. In our businesses would take advantage of someone else. Why does Jesus warn us about this? Because in our identity, in who we truly are apart from Christ, this is all of us. If left to ourselves, if left in our sin, this is all of us. That we would, we would, we would take advantage of someone so that we can gain, so that we can profit, so that we can benefit. Third thing, he says, beware of those who fake being spiritual. Beware of those who fake spirituality. Look at verse 40. Continues. Beware of those who, for a pretense, make long prayers. And we've all seen the comic example of this, right? Or the long, elaborate prayer that says all these churchy things about God and lays out all this incredible, heady theology so it proves they know who they you know, are talking about. And we can mock what that looks like and we can make fun of what that looks like. But it's not the obvious ones that we're talking about here. It's the traces of this that lurk in my heart and lurk in your heart. That we would fake spirituality, that we would fake relationship with God. These scribes were great at it. See, these, these scribes in their long robes, they didn't stand out as phonies. They wouldn't have gathered a crowd this day if they were known as the, as the phonies in town, right? The reason they had respect among their community is because they demonstrated this beautifully. They looked like the real deal, right? Their public prayers were eloquent, but Jesus is judging their hearts as being empty. And here's where I think we need to be warned here. Even as the church today, a few fumbling words from a humble heart is more magnificent than, than the most incredible prayer prayed from a proud heart. No matter what big words you use and what churchy language you use. I think this is what he's warning against. This is a temptation for every one of us to put on a face when we come in church. To be going through incredible junk out in our work week. To be, be dealing with terrible things at home. To be dealing with uh, things, things in the community, things with our kids that are awful and we're doing terrible. But then we come to church and put on this smile like, hey, we're okay. How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing good. Just love the Lord. So blessed. This is the kind of attitude that he's condemning here. That, that for a pretense, they, 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 they give up these long prayers. It's fake. There's nothing real about it at all. It's all just for show. And you know how you can tell it's for show? I mean, even bringing some application into our own lives here. Yeah, you can tell it's when it's, you can tell it's not for show. It's not for show when your confession doesn't make you look good, right? And we've all had those interviews, like job interviews, where you go into the, the, the interview and, and the person that's interviewing you says, well, hey, could you take a few moments and just tell me about some of your weaknesses, right? And in that moment, you're like, well, my weaknesses are that I just care too much. <laughs> or, or my weakness is that I, I'm just too hard of a worker. I take it too serious, Right? Or, or my weakness is that I just care too much about excellence. You know, I expect that out of me and out of the people I'm working with. That's kind of a weakness. Get real, man. Every one of those weaknesses just made you look strong, right? You're spinning that in a way in which your weakness is actually a strength for this person that's doing the interview for you. 
And we do that, right? When we're confessing sin to one another, when we're, when we're in community with our growth group, we, we have a tendency to do that. Well, my biggest struggle is, you know, I, I only read my Bible six days out of the last seven. I just really need prayer that seventh day I was slacking. Or, or I only prayed three hours a day this last week. You know, I, I really need to amp that up. Would you pray for me that I'd be more, more serious? Man, get real. You know how it's all for show because it's making you look good. <laughs> you know how when it's not for show, it's when you confess sin to a brother and sister and it makes you look like the sinner that you are. Man, this is a real struggle in my life. I need prayer for this brother because I'm struggling here. I need prayer for this sister because I'm tempted to do this. That's how we can know it's genuine and it's real and you're not doing it for a pretense. You're not just faking spirituality. Why does Jesus warn us about this? Because it's a part of who we are. In our human flesh, in our nature as sinful human, human beings, we want us to be seen as better than we are. We want people to think that we're doing okay, that we've got it figured out. Fourth thing, Jesus says, beware of the judgment that is a certainty. Beware of the judgment of God that is a certainty. If you read the last part of verse 40, it says this, and this is terrifying. They will receive the greater condemnation. He finishes making all these statements about the severity of false spirituality, the severity of faking a relationship with the Lord, and then he gives this startling warning. They will receive the greater condemnation. Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Luke says this. He's quoting Jesus. Jesus says, to everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Friends, to know what is right and not do it invites harsher punishment and judgment. Warren Wearsby said this in his commentary. We've had Watergate. We've had Korea Gate, Iran Gate, and now the latest scandal is the Pearly Gate. For 19 centuries, the church has been telling the world to admit its sins, repent, and believe the gospel. And in the twilight of the 20th century, the world is telling the church to face up to her sins, to repent, and start being the church of that gospel. Ouch. Friends, if that hurts, if that stings, it should. Jesus here is pulling no punches when dealing with the hearts and intentions of those that claim to know and love the Lord. He's being real clear. I'm talking to you, scribes, and this is the way you've been. And I think we make that application for the church today. He's not talking to outsiders here. He's talking to those in the synagogue, those that that claim to love and know the Lord. So what about us, church? Why does Jesus warn us about this coming judgment and about the greater condemnation? Because our true identity apart from Christ is still under that condemnation. And to have known the gospel and rejected it, to know what is good and right according to God's word and reject it, there's greater condemnation, the Bible says. Time Magazine and Forbes Magazine both released lists this last year of the most dangerous jobs. Lists of the most dangerous jobs. You may guess some of them. But both Time and Forbes magazine said logging, number one, sorry, Mike, number two, professional fishermen, and number three, pilots, loggers, fishermen, and pilots. We have men in this church that do most of those things, and so we should pray for them regularly. But I think Jesus would disagree here. I think he would beg to differ. Based on his statement in this text in verse 40, they will receive greater condemnation. 
I think being a theologian, being a student of the Bible is the most dangerous vocation in life. And for that matter, going to a church that believes the Bible and teaches the Bible every week is one of the most dangerous places on earth. Why? Well, not not because you you have a greater chance of, of being physically hurt or wounded here. Too much is given, much is required. Sadly, we, we hear the gospel over and over. We hear the word of God over and over. And each time we hear it, our accountability increases. You have his word. As did these Sadducees. As did these scribes. As did these Pharisees. And God will not overlook hypocrisy. He will not overlook sin. And so many people have been drawn near to Christ and hear the gospel and hear his word and look and act nothing like Jesus. God will not overlook this. Friends, if revival ever comes to our nation, it'll begin right here in God's house. When God's people decide to get real about what he said in the word. When we take these warnings seriously, that there is a greater condemnation for those that are are here and have heard the word of God and still refuse to believe and follow Christ. Our study of this text should, should cause us to ask some major questions. So in in conclusion this morning, as we wrap up, I want to give you three questions with some qualifying questions, maybe, to help understand what I mean. But three questions I think we have to ask as we walk away from a text like this. Number one, what place does God's word have in your life? What place does his word have in your life? Do you know it? Do you read it? Are you so bound to this culture that the word of God is not taking root in your heart? That you look more like this culture than you do what's identified to you in his word. Do you really want the Bible to do its work in your heart? I think the text calls us to carefully, even painfully, seek and and to know the Lord and be biblical in our understanding of the faith. What it means to follow Christ. Second question I think we must ask in wrestling with a text like this. Why do you serve God? What's the motivation for your life being devoted to God? Is it to look holy to those around you? Is it to look like you've got it more put together to those at work that see you every day? Is it so that those even in the household of faith would be like, man, they're sold out. They don't stop. They serve the Lord all the time. God help us if that's our motivation. If if our motivation for, for serving and loving the Lord is really so that we would be recognized by those around us whether that's as, as elders, as Sunday school teachers, as growth group leaders, as nursery workers, full spectrum. If our service is for our benefit, it is wrong. Number three, I think biggest question of all that this text calls us to ask and wrestle with, who is Jesus? Whose son is the Christ? Who is Jesus? Whose son is he? Whose Lord is he? Who's, who's he revealed himself to be in the scriptures? There have been numerous answers, and this is the way we started our, t- our time this morning. Numerous answers, and it is not possible for you to just go, well, it doesn't matter. I, I'm not making a judgment on this. You are, in doing that, making a judgment on this. The most eternally significant judgment that you have ever made. Because if he is who he said he is, and if his resurrection does indeed prove that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man, then His life, His resurrection, His death on the cross demands our worship. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love You. 
And we thank you for texts of scripture that calls us to see who you are and that simultaneously convict us and challenge us to see who we are in response. So as we sing, as we respond to the word, God, I pray it wouldn't be just a mental exercise for us this morning to see in the, in the words of Scripture some things that were said about you, Jesus, but that those things would have a transforming effect on our hearts, that you would conform us into the image of you, Jesus, by your Spirit. If there's one in this room that's never given their life to you, that they've never trusted you, and that your death on the cross was, was for their sin, they've never repented and followed you, in faith, would the day be the day that they make that decision? We give you this time. Spirit, would you work? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.